The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Friday, September 21st, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So I subscribe to three or four tip sheets. Tip sheets. What am I cornering the market on silver? You know, emails that recommend other interesting links. And today, two of the three or four, it really should be more specific, two of the four, recommended the same article, Alexandra DeSanctis in the National Review. And she wrote an article headlined, The Kavanaugh Allegations Should Be Confronted, Not Ignored which may not seem that groundbreaking to you, but this is the National Review. So it was the conservative argument for fully hearing out Dr. Blasey or Dr. Blasey Ford or Dr. Ford. Maybe if we hear her out, we'll know what she wants to be called. It was an interesting article. Mostly, she used the article to rebut the conventional wisdom, and the conventional wisdom was exemplified by a Dennis Prager column where Dennis Prager argued that it would undermine the, quote, foundational moral principles of any decent society if we attempt to discover whether Christine Blasey Ford's sexual assault allegations against Brett Kavanaugh have any basis in fact. Really, I would say if your society is based on not trying to find out if one of the nine most important judges in the land is or isn't a rapist, That's not a great foundation. That is a pretty immoral society. I got to say, of course, I'm just speaking from the 21st century perspective. So it's a fine article is Alexandra DeSanctis' article, as I said, although it was kind of easy to score points against Dennis Prager, like when Prager argues, quote, when my wife was a waitress in her mid-teens, The manager of her restaurant grabbed her breasts and squeezed them on numerous occasions. She told him to buzz off, figured out how to avoid being in places where they were alone, and continued going about her job. That's empowerment. No, that's hiding. Mid-teens. This is not only workplace sexual harassment. It's a version of statutory rape. Dennis Prager, I mean, dream big, maybe even of a future where all harassed waitresses will bravely and boldly never be alone with their grabby managers, who will, of course, still exist and grab, grab, grab. And perhaps Prager will endorse an idea that sensibly avoiding a transgressor who will never face any consequence, that could be the moral principle that a foundation serves for a decent, nay, ideal society. In fact, think of a future where one day we as a society all boldly agree not to talk about grandma's drinking. And this may sound like, I don't know, a technological utopia, but can we empower a blockchain technology that allows us to share tactics of avoidance about having to sit on Uncle Dave's lap at family functions. Or even, maybe we could use open-sourced forums, salons, if you will, where we can share and expound upon information about the creepy janitor who's lingering a little too long at the towel rack at the gym. All right, as Dennis Prager's people say, oi. So it was good to know the National Review had a rebuttal of such, as Dennis Prager's people don't say, tripe. And then I looked to the right of the page, Next to this article, which all my, I think, excellent tip sheets direct me to, the National Review. Top stories. The number one story. No hearing, just vote on Kavanaugh nomination. 
Second most popular story. Do Democrats really believe Christine Blasey Ford doesn't have to prove her claims? Third most popular story. The demands the Ford team has made are ludicrous. And the fourth most popular story. Censure Dianne Feinstein. Perhaps one day I can bravely avoid those. On the show today, it is an Antan twig. We settle all family business. I admit mistakes. You don't want to miss that. But first, an interesting way to look at a driver of human behavior. How countries and societies are organized. Social norms. Are they strong? And is deviance not tolerated? Well, that would be a tight culture. Or is it a place where the national flag is less likely to fly than one's own freak flag? That place would be called a loose culture. Tight and loose cultures. Professor Michelle Gelfand lays it all out. One, two, three, get loose now. Or tight, depending on your predilection. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. There are two types of people in the world, the type of people who put people in categories and the type of people who put people in categories but don't get a book deal out of it. My guest is in the former camp. Michelle Gelfand has written a new book that's really, really interesting because she says don't look at countries of the world, even states in the United States, on the continuum of, say, open to immigrants or closed to immigrants or on the continuum of free trade, restrictive trade, or has nationalized health care, doesn't have nationalized health care. By the way, that would just be us in Papua New Guinea. Look at the nations of the world, even the states of the United States, on a continuum of looseness and tightness. She's here to talk about her book, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. So what do you mean? What do you mean by loose and tight? What's a loose country? Sure. Let me just back up and say that every day we are following social rules without even realizing it. We wake up, we put clothes on, most of us, before walking outside the, the street. We drive on the right or the left, depending on where we live. We don't have sex in movie theaters. We don't face the back of the elevators. Sometimes I try to do that just to see what, how people react. Yeah. We follow rules constantly, but some cultures, some groups follow rules more strongly than others. They're what I call tight cultures. They strongly adhere to rules and punish those who don't comply. Loose cultures have far more permissiveness, and they're lax when it comes to social rules. So the tight cultures are not only following the rules, they're making rules that that reflect the fact that they are a tight culture. And even if something isn't written down, you're also saying they're following the unwritten rules. There are more unwritten rules to follow, and deviating from them gets punished a little more harshly in the tight culture. Yeah, that's right. Just even by ostracism and by a uh, nasty look. Let's take Germany, for example. You'll, you'll go to Germany, you'll be amazed to see people waiting patiently on the street corners, even if there's no cars. You go to here in New York City, my hometown, I'm proud of it, but we jaywalk like there's no tomorrow with babies in tow. Um, in Singapore, which is a fine country, they call it, because there's so many things that you can get punished for, from littering and chewing gum. Um, And you take a quick plane ride over to New Zealand, you see people walking barefoot in banks. These are really big distinctions we see all around the world. 
barefoot in banks, backwards on an elevator. You're blowing my mind. So if loose countries are a little more disorganized, another uh, rubric you cited was just look if their public clocks are synchronized or not. That I thought was really interesting. You do an experiment with um, people with facial piercings. Will they get directions in a loose country? They're more likely to get directions. And tight countries, higher self-control, you know, but less entrepreneurial ship. So many questions. My first is how do they get this way? Is it the people or is it the culture telling the people how to act? This is such a great question. And actually, in our research, there's no obvious way in which tight cultures are united or loose cultures are united. There's no common religion, common space, common tradition or language. But one thing that really unifies uh, tight cultures is the level of threat that they experience. So mm-hmm. we measured in this study um, how many invasions did a country have to face? How many natural disasters um, did the country face? How much population density is there? In Singapore, there's 20,000 people per square mile. In Brazil, there's like 50 and there's more sheep per capita than people. How do these things affect the need for rules? And that's really what tightness is about. It's the need for rules to coordinate for survival. Loose cultures, loose states, loose organizations, they don't have a lot of threat and so they can afford to be more permissive. And this is something that really is not just from the modern era. We've analyzed it in traditional societies ranging from the Aztecs to the Inca and we see the same exact pattern. Countries that have a lot of famine, who had a lot of invasions, they tend to evolve to be tight. Now, as I looked at the list of tight and loose and began to think of things that way, it did strike me that in general, regions of the world acted in concert. Asian countries, almost all tight. Uh, Caribbean countries, mostly loose. Nordic countries, tight, even though free and open, tight. But African countries, looser. Um, yeah, actually, there's a lot of diversity within those regions. You look at, like, Europe, for example. You see Spain is pretty loose. And then you have Germany, Austria that are really pretty tight. UK is a, uh, in the middle of those. So you could see that each country has its own evolved traditions when it comes to tight-loose. You know, we also were observing behavior. How much do people argue, you know, on a subway? Are they eating on the bus? Are they kissing in the movie theater? I mean, in loose cultures, there's a wide range of behaviors that's permissible. And in tight cultures, you'll see much more restricted range of what's permissible. I was on a train in Japan with my two teenagers. They're really well-behaved kids. But I had to say to them, shh, like you are so loud compared to what other people like on this train. Even things we can measure how loud our place is around the world, which is what we did. Strong connection with tightness. Um, Just like when you're in a library, which is a tight context, you don't hear people screaming. That's the same thing with tight cultures. You'll hear less noise. You go from the Netherlands into Germany, you'll see a big difference. How correlative is this with a couple of other ways to look at the world? Population density is something that occurred to me before I even got into the book, just living cheek by jowl versus wide open spaces. So it is true that the United States, there's a lot of land there. And it is true that Brazil, there's a lot of land there. But in terms of where people actually live, the citizens of Brazil are more likely to live in an urban center than in, and Brazil's just about the loosest country, than a lot of these tight countries, right? Yeah, well, actually, it's important to to remember that all tight cultures have loose elements and all loose cultures have tight elements. I mean, in the United States, which is a relatively loose place, we have pretty strong rules around privacy, for example. I won't just show up at your house tonight and say, hey, I'd like to have a drink and celebrate, you know, this interview. Um, We have tight rules around really important domains like freedom and And same with in Brazil, the family is really important. So in general, though, it's a loose culture. That domain tends to be pretty tightly regulated. With that said, I'll say like cities, for example, yeah, there's a lot of population density, but there's so much anonymity. And when you have anonymity, you have less accountability to have to abide by rules. And that's why cities are kind of interesting places. What about just average mean temperature? 
aren't countries closer to the equator? It's really hot. You got to take off your clothes. You tend to get loose. <laughs> you know, we analyzed this. We didn't find a direct connection with temperature. Really? Or so with, what are the hot countries? I'm trying to think of the exceptions if it's not true that the hot countries are loose. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that you know, in reality, you see that even places like Norway and, and other Nordic places, which, you know, are particularly, you know, more cold, they also have low population density. There's a lot of factors right, that go right, into this. So, right. you know, yeah, it's yeah, really... Yeah, you're right. In the American South, which is hotter than the Northeast, yeah. they're That's tighter. Right. Yeah. That's right. I think if you were to put your money on the predictors, though, they have to do with threat. They have to do with disasters. In the South, we also see some founders effect. Like, who settled in these areas? Mm-hmm. Um, Colin Ward would say, you know, we're not a United States. We're really distinct states. And we kind of kept our ourselves together somehow miraculously, the people that settled in the South were from honor cultures. Honor cultures are very tight, and they needed to be. I have research on this because they, they need to coordinate and survive um, lots of threats and, and, and weak institutions. We do know that loose cultures tend to have more diversity up mm-hmm. to a certain point. As you get extremely diverse, like in Pakistan or India, where you have you know hundreds of languages very and traditions, then we get more tight because that can yeah. be seen as a threat. So diversity tends to actually promote looseness. So does mobility. Uh, if you have people constantly coming and going. Like in China, it used to be that you couldn't even move to another city without Haku, without a permission. So when you're in a when you're right. in an environment, and, you know, where you Abu have, Dhabi is the probably loosest in the Arab world. It's also the crossroads. Exactly, of the Middle East. much yeah. a lot of diversity in those contexts. It's hard to kind of agree upon any one standard of behavior. And I want to get back to your point about rural areas. Certainly, the tight states have a greater percentage of rural areas. And you think about rural areas, that's where like the gossip mill is really kind of going. Like you're being watched and in years oh, to enforce uh, norms. to enforce norms. Yeah, yeah. And you know. Aaron Aranzayan, a psychologist at UBC, would say that watch people are nicer people. We know that when you're accountable, when people are watching you, then you behave yourself a little bit more. <laughs> so that is really important. When yeah, it comes or to more rules. oppressed or less free to be who you really are or less free to dissent. I mean, there's other sides That's to that. right. There is. That's the trade-off. Yeah. I mean, in tight contexts where there tends to be more threat, people need to be more coordinated. Um, it's funny to me that New York is a loose place because it's so heavily populated by immigrants, but so many of these immigrants came from tight places. Yeah, it's so interesting because like that's the a big, India and Pakistan are so tight, yeah. they come to the United States yeah. and they're part of diversity which makes us lose. Yeah, it's really amazing and actually I can say that it's a big culture shock for a lot of the kids that come from these families. Like, So, you know, even though they're coming to lose context, their kids are still kind of bicultural. They're trying to navigate tight norms in their household and then go to high schools that are wildly loose. I've seen this in my own, my kids, their friends. I mean, it's a struggle to try to integrate those tight and loose norms for immigrant kids. Right, so let's talk about kids because there's a big part of your book. Um, it lets people think that you're trying to paint with a big brush. Uh, states are all the same or countries are the same. You take the instance of two people who are from a town a mile apart, but one's a working class person and one's a more upper class person, and they really lead a loose, tight lifestyle. They have a different reaction to rules, and they have a different reaction. Even the kids, three-year-olds in experiments, were found to have a different attitudes towards rules. Yeah. Uh, how does that show up? Yeah, this is such a great question, because often we think about social class as only about differences in bank accounts. And really, class is cultural, and it's really fundamentally influenced by tight and loose. And the working class, it's pretty simple. They're worried about slipping into hard living, into poverty. There's a, these are really threatened 
uh, groups in terms of um, not just finances, but also on the job, going to more dangerous jobs, living in areas, our data show, that are more uh, heavy on crime. They need strong rules. Parents know their kids need these kind of rules to survive these contexts. And when we measure tightness in the working middle class, it's very clear that the working class is much tighter and wants stronger rules. Right. And you mentioned, you know, this comes so up very early. So person might say, rules are made to be broken. Hey, you fiddle with the rules, you move fast and break things. A lower class person might say, rules give me comfort. Yeah. Rules give us order. Yeah. Rules keep uh, the demons of chaos at yeah. bay. That's right. They keep us from, like, falling into gangs, into other hard-living circumstances. You know, even, uh, you mentioned three-year-olds. We brought three-year-olds into the laboratory, and we can't exactly ask three-year-olds, you know, about norms and what they think of norms and rules, but we could have them interacting with this puppet. Max the puppet, who they're befriending, and then all of a sudden, Max the puppet becomes a norm violator, starts violating all the rules of the game and is announcing that he's still following the rules of the game. We can videotape these kids, as we did, and I talk about it in the book, and simply see how do they react to max the norm violator. And it's very clear the difference. With middle class kids, they're more likely to laugh and think it's kind of funny. By theory, three years old, the working class kids are more disturbed by this. They're angry. They're telling the, the puppet to stop. So these differences emerge very, very early. They're reinforced through schools. You can think about working class schools being more like a military versus a university type setting for middle class kids. Um, I do want to say that what's interesting about social class is that we often would imagine people going from the U.S. to Pakistan or Japan are, are experiencing culture shock. But we don't quite realize that that's what's happening with the working class as they enter into middle class loose institutions. And I can say that for a fact based on you know colleges and what happens when working class first generation kids go to college. It's a pretty big shock. We've seen this in some of our own data. Yeah. Um, when you're used to a lot of structure um, and you go into this very unstructured lifestyle, you know, kids from loose contexts are more used to that. And I yeah. think that it it really behooves us to really understand this culture shock they're experiencing. Some universities are trying to help out first-generation students. They're treating their navigation as a culture shock, as they should. I think colleges may be too loose. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. I mean, I'm the, I'm the parent of two teenagers, and this is another place you'll see tight loose really uh, coming up in an important way in your own household. Part of the thing I think is interesting at tight loose is that you can talk about it with your family, with your spouse, with your kids, and negotiate it. Yeah. And I do that all the time. Yeah. My girlfriend and I talk about it all the time, actually. She's really rigid, and I'm really not. And I think as the loose one, it's easier for me to countenance her rigidity because just think about what the uh, what the definitions are. Yeah. But, you know, once you know about it, it's something to work on. Yeah, that's right. And also understanding where it comes from. Like, you know, tight-loose differences, what I call the tight-loose mindset, evolves also for good reason, based on your upbringing, based on your own experience with hardship, uh, based on your occupation, your generation. So it's really important to understand it and, again, like, negotiate it because it can't be negotiated. I sit down and I say, look, these domains have to be tight yeah. and these domains can be loose. You could be a slob around the house, but you better treat your sister nicely. Yeah. I think that, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's best for both the parents to be on the same page or if you know. It's probably good for the kids if the parents have a functional, very functional relationship and to have one parent of each so you get a little taste of I each. I think as long as you're explicit and consistent, it's really important. But right. the more, more important rule, I call it the Goldilocks principle in the book, is that even if families veer tight or loose for good reasons, the more extreme you get in either direction, either becoming too tight or too loose, the more problems that we have, both in families but also in nations. It's something we can negotiate in our households. Uh, it's something we can anticipate um, when countries are getting
getting too loose, when they're getting to be very unstable, they yearn for tightness. This happened with ISIS. It sounds pretty strange, but people actually welcomed ISIS in many areas because there was such disorder. And yes, you know, yes, yes. Pe- of course, it came in the wake of the evasion of Iraq, and that's not an accident. It didn't pop up in countries that wasn't that weren't war torn. That's right. And yeah. actually, even Arab Spring, we predicted it when it was happening that even people who overthrew Mubarak, and of course, this is multiple determined. There's not one explanation for this, but we knew that as soon as he was taken out, the uncertainty, the chaos that was going to ensue was going to really make people right. crave order again. Duterte is another example. People don't understand why do people love him in the Philippines. It's because the place was really falling apart. Why do people love Putin? It's because Russia was falling apart. When you have disorder, people want strong men to help them organize. Yeah. So here's the one thing about Trump that I don't get in light of your book and your findings. I understand that he speaks to people and stokes these fears, these tribalistic fears, and talks to their rigidity and their tightness. But he's the greatest norm breaker ever. And tightness and looseness is about adherence to norm and breaking norms. Um, Is it just hypocrisy? Well, let me ask my question this way. Is that a, do you think that's a huge vulnerability to him that his people, maybe they respond to his view, his worldview of the world is a tight place. But if he's breaking norms, they're really going to object to it? I think it's the most ironic thing we can see with this presidency, that he's breaking all sorts of rules that we took for granted in this presidency. The executive office to be doing the kind of he's doing is unheard of. But what I think the key is here is that he's promising these groups a return to a traditional order. And that's far more important to them than him tweeting out obscenities. (laughs) Same with Duterte. Duterte violates the norms of discourse, but in service of enforcing a norm of order. No, that's right. And I think Trump invents, you know, many, many threats and caters to the psychology of the availability heuristic where you hear about someone, a non-documented immigrant killing someone, and suddenly he makes it out to be this is everyone that's part of that community. And what was really heartening when you saw Molly's uh, father from Iowa saying this is not about immigration. We know we're not going to stereotype this person as, you know, being any more of an immigrant than we would of some lunatic white guy, uh, neo-Nazi, being white. And and there's people standing up to these kinds of irrational fear-making that Trump is doing. And and I think what people like Trump know is that this threatening language tightens up people and makes him more popular. Rule makers, rule breakers, how tight and loose cultures wire our world. Michelle Gelfand is a professor at the University of Maryland at College Park. Thank you, Dr. Gelfand. Thanks for having me. We're thrilled to announce Slate Day, a live podcast experience produced in conjunction with the Texas Tribune Festival. Join us and the GIST's fellow politically-minded shows, Political Gap Fest, Trumpcast, Amicus, and El Gap Fest. Attendees will experience their favorite political podcasts live and will have unique opportunities to mingle with the hosts and fellow fans during our cocktail party and you'll also get to purchase exclusive merchandise at a Slate Day pop-up shop. Slate Day will take place at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin, Texas, on Saturday, September 29th, in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival. It's an intimate venue with limited seating. Get your tickets today. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and info. And now the spiel, it is an antan twig, our name for a three-week period, not caused by too much iron in your diet. See a physician before trying an antan twig. People allergic to antan twigs should not take antan twigs. So, you know, antan twig, it comes from the old English word meaning 21, so it's a three-week period, but it's been a bit bastardized, I do have to say. 
We really don't visit an Antan twig sometimes for a month or a little more than a month. You know what else has been bastardized? The actual word bastard doesn't mean what it once did. So I said the other day, I said Mark David Chapman, and I meant John Hinckley. Apologies to neither of those men, but to you, the listener. I was talking about the Russian poisoners who might have just been in it to impress their beloved Vlad, like Mark David Chapman was trying to impress Jodie Foster, only it wasn't Mark David Chapman, it was John Hinckley. Also, I don't think it worked with Jodie Foster, but it might have worked with Putin. Hinckley, by the way, is now out of St. Elizabeth's Hospital, and he is allowed to live with his mother. Conditions are that he not contact any member of the Reagan family, which is sort of the thing that you'd think maybe he wouldn't need to have to be told if he's allowed out of the hospital. Also, John Hinckley can't be on the internet without his mother's supervision. Because, of course, there's no better way to monitor someone's internet use than to ask a 92-year-old woman to do it. Anyway, I did goof about that. I am sorry. Here's another big one. Cicero. I misplaced Cicero. It is in Illinois, not Ohio. No, 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 not a geographic mistake. That's not what I got wrong. But in my defense, there's a whole lot of things I didn't get wrong. You too. Feeling down about yourself? Think about all the things that you've never gotten wrong. You've most likely never made a mistake in translating texts from the original Aramaic. Am I right? You never offended local sensibilities by a thoughtless gaffe while visiting the Hmong people in Laos. You most definitely, I'm going to say, never referred to Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands as the Duchess of Mecklenburg, turns out she was the first Dutch monarch in 79 years not to also hold that title. But you never made that mistake. You never brazenly advanced a Brett Kavanaugh doppelganger theory on social media. I hope you didn't. Good for you. And perhaps you never said Cicero was Greek. But I did. I said that. He was not. He was Roman. Come on, of course. The guy's full name was Marcus Tullius Cicero. Everyone named Marcus is a Roman orator or an Oakland Raider. Which brings me to Lincoln Kennedy, who was an Oakland Raider, but an offensive tackle, an offensive tackle, not a defensive tackle. Am I perhaps sounding defensive? I don't mean to be. Is it offensive, my level of defensiveness? Perhaps I am exhibiting former sports reporter fragility. By the way, upon further review, the greatest what-ifs of sports history, still available on sale. You know, today, there's a excerpt of a Stefan Fatsis chapter in that book for which I was the editor. Sports Illustrated's running that today. You got a forward by Malcolm Gladwell, Bob Ryan's in it, Jason Gay, 31 contributors. Upon further review, okay, where was I? I wanted to mention this. It wasn't a mistake, but um, there's a little Easter egg for you, a thing that we tried that didn't work. Not a huge failure. You wouldn't have even noticed it, but I'll let you in on the inside. Okay, so Ethan Hawke was by. We were interviewing Ethan Hawke, and I started the interview with these words. Great to have you here. Great to be here. New movie, Blaze, terrific movie. Love it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> okay, seems benign. Seems like a nice thing to say. Maybe a little less formal than I am in intros. But the reason I started like that is because he had directed this new movie called Blaze. And one of the first scenes in the movie, the two of the main characters are sitting down to do a radio interview. And the radio interviewer, played by Ethan Hawke, is almost entirely a disembodied voice. He starts his interview like this. New record. No deeper blue. That's right. Terrific record. Love it. Thank you. So you get it? You get it? I thought Ethan Hawke would get it. I thought he would find it a sly and delightful reference. I'm pretty sure he didn't notice, but now you did. I really 
liked Ethan Hawke, though, although, you know, he's one of those two-name guys. You know the two-name guys. We all have a couple of them in our life. Yeah, I love that movie, you know, with Stiller and Winona. She's a first-name girl. And uh, Garofalo and Ethan Hawke. Always Ethan Hawke. And now comes the time when we name the lobster of the Antan Twig. The lobster is the listener-reader, Twitterer, or interacterer who did the best job, who most elevated the gist during this three-week period, which, you know, closer to a month. And so what I want to do in this Lobstar space is to thank all my guest hosts who served while I was away. Evan, Stephanie, Alex, and Steve, thank you guys so much. But now to Max. So Max Kerman, lead singer of the group Arkells, has his own podcast with a friend, Mike. It's called Mike on Much. Check it out. I have never talked to Max over the phone I have talked to him in real life a couple years ago, but, you know, we tweet or sometimes uh, share an email. But I know if I say this here, this is the forum where Max hears me most, and Mike on Much is the forum where I hear Max the most. And a couple episodes ago, it was the Hating Christiansen episode. He was the guest on episode 113. Max was telling the story about guest hosting the gist, and I didn't realize how... He didn't hate it, but I did burden him with a lot more than perhaps I did the other guest hosts because their job is professional talker on TV or radio, and Max is a great communicator, but not exactly in this form. Here's a little bit of Max talking about that. There is a recipe to his job that he is very well schooled in. There's a process to like how you put together an article, like uh, an open like that and a close. That he is very aware of, and I don't know any of that. I listen to the show, and I and I've learned through us, like through listening to the show, but I don't technically actually know how to do it. I got to say, him talking about that on his show, uh, I will be a little bit vulnerable right now, and I say it was very touching to hear that. And also, I didn't realize how stressful the job was on Max, and that may have been a little insensitive on my part. I look through the world, I guess as we all do, through my lens. Um, If you said, Mike, write a song, I would no way be able to do that. So the fact that Max is able to do that and to turn something else within him and host the gist, I very much appreciate it. And let me say, if you haven't heard Max's, oh, it was such a good week of guest hosts. I just loved it as a listener. And Max interviewing Daniel Dale, it was a better interview to me, for me, to my ears than I could have done. Because I would have asked him the things that I know. And to some extent, those are things that I would have expected to ask because I would be doing the asking. But when Max was talking to him, he was asking him things I never would have thought to ask him, like the difference in politeness between covering Canadian politicians and covering American politicians. That was fascinating. And all this adds up to the fact that my lobster of the Antan Twig is Hayden Christensen, because he seemed like a great guy in the interview on that show. Am I really going to punish a guy for seeming stiff in a movie directed by George Lucas? I mean, come on. Hayden, you are the lobster. Put that on your trophy case next to the Show West Convention USA's 2005 Male Star of Tomorrow, also the Cannes Film Festival Chopard Trophy, and also your two Razzies out of three nominations, the Razzies. It's an insult just to be nominated. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They don't believe in the loose, tight dichotomy, but the loose to funky dichotomy, the chicken being funky, the goose appreciably more loose. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She finds it ironic that someone who's tight with money 
would enjoy finding loose change. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, reminds you, lefty loosey, righty tidy, good for screwdrivers, ratchet sets, and politicians up until about 2012. The gist, Bruce is loose and Dwight is tight. Bruce is up till dawn, Dwight he sleeps at night. The lefty's loosey, the righty's tidy. Boxer briefs for Bruce, Dwight wears tidy whities And this has been your daily dog roll. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>